to be seated. Last Sunday, we began to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And as I mentioned last Sunday, very specifically, we were going to walk together through the next couple of weeks over these four points of common devotion that Luke records in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The church, uh, after the day of Pentecost, uh, Luke tells us, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And in this summary passage, Luke is recording four points of devotion, four things around which the individuals of the church were joined, and thus four things which defined the church as a whole. Now, coming as quickly as it does after the events of Pentecost, Anglican pastor John Stott has referred to these four points of devotion as evidence of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. I, I think Stott means to say, without the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the diverse whole as individuals would not have been able to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Without the Holy Spirit, they would have not been able to devote themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Now, this morning, as we, as we look very specifically at this idea of devotion to the fellowship, I'd like to take just a few minutes to remind you of something that I said last week. I'd like to remind you that Scripture has a way of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. We've seen that uh, there's some, some uneasy laughter out there this morning. We've seen that the devoted, being devoted to the apostles' teaching in our modern context is being devoted to the Scriptures. And we've seen that devotion is a dogged pursuit, a desire, a hunger for and a submission to the authority of, in this case, the Scriptures. Now, Scripture has a way of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable because Scripture points out course correction. Scripture reveals sin. Scripture calls us to account. But Scripture also reveals Jesus to us and all of His promises of true life in God. Scripture teaches us how through Jesus we can be reconciled to the Father, blessed with the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures provide the content of our faith. They define what we believe. And just as importantly, the Scriptures provide the authoritative framework for life and faith. And so sometimes when we come to the Word of God, it stings. It stings. But every time when we come to the Word of God, there is healing, cooling balm, right? The scriptures are a two-edged sword, as the author of Hebrews has said. So, with that in mind, let's look at this second point of devotion. The earliest church was devoted to fellowship. I want to introduce to you, you probably already know these two Greek words, but I want to bring them back to our mind. The, the first Greek word that I'd like to bring back to our mind is the word koinonia, now, fellowship, this word fellowship in English is the best translation for the Greek word koinonia, but it doesn't quite capture the totality of what the word means. 
Koinonia is a close association involving mutual interests and sharing. Koinonia is also an attitude of goodwill that manifests an interest in a close relationship. And koinonia is, quite simply, participation. So when we talk about koinonia, we're talking about a group of people gathered around something. Because of that something, they work together towards something. And that participation builds bonds of affection among the individuals. I know, it's all kind of abstract, right? Yep, thank you. Some, some folks are nodding their head. I think it's kind of abstract. So I want to do what I always do, which is try to offer an illustration. Of course, this being Father Caleb preaching, I'm going to offer an illustration from the Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> you guys had three, four options, really. You had Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Batman, or a Clint Eastwood Western. Yeah. After, what's that? Oh, there is wrestling sometimes. I have brought out the, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Hard times. All right, so if we look at, uh, look at the Lord of the Rings, right? The first of, of J.R.R. Tolkien's books and the first of the movies that were put together by Peter Jackson, the first of each is entitled The Fellowship of the Ring. And in the story, The Fellowship of the Ring, there are nine people, representatives of five different races. Some of the races hate each other, like the elves and the dwarves. But these representatives of five different races, they form a, a, a group. They form a team around a common goal. The shared goal for the fellowship of the rings of these nine individuals was to destroy the one ring. It would make a whole lot more sense if you just watched the movie. <laughs> but they have this one goal of destroying the one ring, the one ring which the most evil power in the entirety of all of Middle-earth, the world, desires to possess in order to rule. So over the course of the story, uh, these nine individuals, because of their shared mutual interest in the destruction of the ring because of their shared mutual goal, because of their shared struggle. They have to fight orcs and balrogs and, and uh, the, 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 the wraiths is amazing. I love it. Because of the shared struggle, and about three of you understand what I'm saying, because of the shared trials, the shared triumph, koinonia is formed through active participation in shared life. Or think about uh, that wonderful... Uh, miniseries called the band of brothers right world war ii easy company uh, creation of this tight-knit force of men willing to die for one another because of their koinonia because of their fellowship because of their life together and so to say then that the earliest church was marked by a devotion of fellowship uh, that they were developed that they're devoted to koinonia is to say that the members of the earliest church had things in common they participated in life together, and they developed close relationships. And the earliest believers had in common, they were gathered around no one less than Jesus. The fellowship among believers in Jesus begins with unity in, through, by, and around Jesus as Lord and Savior, regardless of ethnicity, genealogy, place of birth, economic status, or any other grounds that people use to justify various forms of segregation. Fellowship in Jesus' church, the church that he builds, is based solely upon the grace that is received through faith in Jesus. 
the Apostle Paul, writing his letter to the Galatians, says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christian Fellowship, a pastor and author Colin Smith has said, goes beyond doing life together. It's about doing life together in Christ, with Christ, and for Christ. And there we see the necessity of the church. Gathered around Jesus, believers are gathered into the church. Now, perhaps this is very obvious to everyone, and I'm certainly not trying to insult anyone's powers of observation, but sometimes those things which are incredibly obvious are the things that we most easily skip over. And so I want to state the obvious. Believing in Jesus and receiving baptism necessarily means that a person is brought into the church. Baptism is the beginning of life in Jesus, not the end. It's one step along the way. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate baptisms. Next week, we're going to celebrate baptisms. And for these four young people, this is the beginning of their life in Jesus as they are brought into the church. We need to notice this, that on that day of Pentecost, about 3,000 people believed in Jesus. 3,000 people were baptized. 3,000 people joined the church. While salvation is individual, which is to say that a person believes in Jesus, receives salvation from Jesus uh, for him or herself and not on behalf of another, salvation is never individualized. It is never apart from the church. All throughout scripture, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, God promises not to save persons, but to redeem people, a people. About the church, author Tish Harrison Warren has said, if Christianity is about God calling, forming, saving, and redeeming the people, then the church can never be relegated to elective status. And quite too often, what we communicate here in the church in America is that you are an individual attached to loosely until something better comes along, a church. But when that thing comes, something better comes along, it's okay to, to walk away, to be a Lone Ranger Christian. That's not biblical. And I'm sorry if that offends, but you can't find that in Scripture. What you find in Scripture are people baptized into the church, into the community, into the fellowship built around Jesus. It's so important, in fact, the church is such a vital aspect for the life of a Christian, a life of a believer in Jesus, that third century bishop of Carthage, Cyprian, said he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. And that's a quote that Protestant reformer John Calvin uses as, in a positive way as he writes his institutes. And so this earliest church was marked by devotion, dogged commitment, and continual pursuit to the fellowship, to the whole, to one another. But what does it look like? What does it look like with skin on? What does it look like with, with skin in the game? What does it look like with sneakers on? It looks like love. It looks like love. The members of the earliest church had things in common, participated in life together, and developed close relationships. They had Jesus in common. They had the apostles' teaching in common. They worshipped together. They cared for one another and shared with one another. Look again at what Luke writes in verse 44 and following. All who believed were together and had all things in common. 
And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. I submit to you that the core, the heart of koinonia is agape. That second Greek word I wanted to bring back to our minds, and agape is love. On the night of his betrayal and arrest, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He served them the supper of his broken body and blood of the new covenant, and he said to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And what we see here in the caring and sharing of Acts 2, 44 through 47 is the intentional living out of Jesus' commandment for agape. Agape is love. And love, not in a modern sense of romantic, hypersexualized love. Agape is love with a deep respect and an admiration that is full of thoughtfulness and concern, consideration for the object, for the one who is loved. And it always demonstrates itself. Agape doesn't run out. Agape doesn't cease. Agape doesn't die. Agape can't uh, be, be changed out of like you change your pants. Rather, love, this agape love is consistent, diligent, dogged pursuit of the object of your love. And here's the thing about that, right? Here's the thing about agape. It always shows itself. Jesus showed his love by dying upon the cross, and Jesus calls all who would follow him to show their love for him and for brothers and sisters in Jesus by dying to self, by giving up stuff so that others might have. Here from this passage in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, agape is revealed to have the willingness to go without so that others might go with. Agape has the desire to be with those who are agaped. Yeah, thank you. Agape has the desire for koinonia, for fellowship. Agape has the desire for togetherness in worship and in ministry. Agape has the desire to be with other church believers, church members, in formal settings and in informal settings. Agape builds koinonia. The earliest church in today's church is called to be devoted to the fellowship, to be the, called to be devoted to the fellowship built by agape. But here is where we're confronted with a really big problem. The problem with koinonia built upon agape, the problem with fellowship built upon and around love is that this is absolutely unnatural for us. This devotion to people, a focus upon others, is not natural in 2017 America, sinful humans are, by nature, self-seeking and self-satisfying. If you've ever been the parent to a two-year-old, you know this. 
If you've ever been the parent to a 22-year-old, you know this. And if you've ever been an honest 32-year-old, you know this about yourself. Sinful human beings are by nature self-seeking and self-satisfying. But in America and in other countries of so-called Western civilization, the self-seeking and self-satisfying nature of our very DNA is compounded by the concepts of radical, expressive individualism and consumerism. In his seminal work, Habits of the Heart, sociologist Robert Bella describes modern American culture. Its center is the autonomous individual presumed able to choose the roles he will play and the commitments he will make, not on the basis of higher truths, but according to the criterion of life effectiveness as the individual judges it. This is radical, expressive individualism, which has dominated culture at least since the 1960s and has roots that go far deeper This is the often unstated and firmly believed and accepted philosophy of life in which the individual is autonomous, which means a law unto the self. I get to determine who I am. I get to determine what I want. I get to determine what I do. It's the claim that I am free from external constraints, that I am my own authority. This is the thought of William Ernest Henley's 19th century poem, Invictus, where the last stanza reads, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is a declaration of independence from every higher authority, making yourself the higher authority. This is the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. The claim to be The master of your fate, the captain of your soul, is an idolatrous, sinful claim. And so it has its beginning in Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve see the fruit, that it was pleasant to the eyes, good for food, and good to bring wisdom. They step away from God's direction and declaration, and they say for themselves, this is good, I want it, and it's good because I say it is good. In 2017 America, we have uh, the, the, we're continuing to see the unfolding of the logical consequences of Genesis chapter 3. Walking away from God the King, walking to self as King, we now see people who identify themselves in ways completely contrary to biology, even to the point where we see now grown men and women who identify themselves as babies looking for someone to change their diapers. I wish that wasn't true. I wish there wasn't a uh, website devoted to that. But there is. I read this morning an article on The Federalist in which there are websites for people who identify themselves, regardless of their age, as infants looking for someone to care for them. There is a group of people who are identifying themselves as vampires and they exchange secrets about obtaining human blood for consumption and not and do it in a way not to freak out their neighbors. One person in, in, in particular identifies themselves, uh, yes, perhaps as a human being, but born with the heart and the spirit of a Mexican wolf. And so he goes around at night howling at the moon. That is the logical extreme of expressive individualism. It began in Genesis chapter 3. We see it now in a very uh, myriad of ways, and it kills koinonia. And it is something with which we are infected. It is an obstacle towards koinonia. It is something from which we must be saved. 
But then we also have the problem that what feeds and drives this machine, this radical, expressive, individualized self, is the dominant cultural value of consumerism. It becomes a very part of the air we breathe. We are born to consume. We are born to take. And more to the point, we are born to consume and take that which we determine to be good or right. We are raised to believe that as radical and expressive individuals, we have the freedom, the privilege, the very right to fill our self-determined needs and our self-defined desires as we see fit. We also, uh, and we not only have the right to do this, we think, but we are now blessed with an abundance of choices to do exactly that. This past week, Anna and I had to adult for a little while. We had to go buy our son a bed, a big boy bed. I was blown away to find out how many different varieties of beds there are and now how many different varieties of pillows there are. You don't like the way your normal pillow smells? You can now buy one infused with lavender or coconut for $100. You don't like flipping over your pillow to get to the cool underside? You can now buy one made by Columbia with self-cooling gel in it. You don't like the way your toothpaste tastes? Well, pick one of the 17,000 others. You don't like the way your wife or husband has aged? Well, trade them in for one that's younger or newer. You don't like the way a particular church worships? You don't like its music? The pastor's not entertaining enough in his sermon? The liturgy goes too long? Well, just go to another one. Find one that fits your needs as you define them. Radical, expressive individualism in a culture dominated by consumerism turns us into autonomous consumption machines driven along by our own desires and definitions of good. And ironically, what we find is that in the end, we are only further and further isolated. We only hang out with people who look like us, think like us, believe like us, like what we like, who consume what we consume, and ultimately that will not suffice. The end of expressive individualism and consumerism is, as the echo chamber shatters, profound loneliness. God offers to his people of his creation through Jesus Christ the antidote to these things because he offers the church. He offers fellowship. He offers koinonia built around and upon agape. This is something from which we must be saved. Expressive individualism uh, and, and, and consumerist mentality. Those are expressions of our sin. And it is something from which the church then must turn and protect itself. The issue is for us, when Jesus is Lord, folks, we just don't get to have our own way anymore. If a person ever really was autonomous, a notion which I believe is highly doubtful, in Jesus there is no autonomy because Jesus is now the law. There is a new authority in the life of a believer, and his name is Jesus. And I'm pretty sure he gets to call the shots. In Jesus, there's a new way of being with new commitments and a new set of devotion. And if we bring radical, expressive individualism, and a consumerist mindset into the church, we will kill it. If we come into the church with the thought of, I will get what I want, demanding our own preferences and our own ways, then what we will find is that the church which we have joined has been gutted of all real meaning, real agape, and real fellowship as we have made it in our own image. 
Jesus came to make Christians, not consumers. Fellowship as the antidote to what we're fed every day in our society is a result of life shared. Life shared around Jesus, because of Jesus, in Jesus, and through Jesus. It's a commitment to the whole beyond the self, and it is absolutely unnatural. It is unnatural to our natural selves, and so for the church to be devoted to fellowship, built upon agape in the face of individualism and consumerism outside and internally, it must be supernatural. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's how St. Paul defined agape in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And that is the very heart of fellowship. A thing that marks Jesus' people as Jesus' people a thing which Jesus requires, a thing which is unnatural to our natural selves, must then be supernatural. In fellowship here, life built around Jesus, characterized by mutual caring, mutual sharing, submitting to one another, that is patient and is kind, that does not envy, boast, or demand its preferences, that is evidence of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We cannot love the way we are called to love without the gracious, transforming power that God has given us in the Holy Spirit at work within us. Only then are we able to love the other, offer to the other that which they need, submit our preferences, and not demand them. Only then are we able to really build fellowship. And it is for our good to be together in Jesus. It is for our protection to be together in Jesus. It is for our growth to be together in Jesus. And it is for our witness to be together in Jesus. As we pray, think, and dream about what it looks like to be a church glorifying God by blessing people with gospel ministries that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom, we need to hear again the words that Jesus on the last night or the night before his crucifixion. And we need to recognize again that the witness of fellowship is built upon love. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Here's the clincher. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We can't help then reflecting on Jesus' words to his disciples and hearing the words as Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47 come to an end, having favor with all the people of the early church. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. We are to offer a radical alternative to the society around us. And if what the society around us is offering is simply radicalized, expressive individualism and consumerism that leads to, to uh, loneliness, a profound sense of loneliness, then maybe what we need to be offering is truth that is not about you, it's about Jesus, and in that truth, true community. 
Perhaps within God's planning and purposes, we find ourselves in the midst of a culture made up of radical, expressive individualism and consumerism precisely so we can proclaim to the lonely, the lost, the used up, and the discarded the radically new society of fellowship in Jesus Christ built upon agape. And perhaps the church of Jesus is called to this distinguishing mark precisely because it is possible only in Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit and different than the world around us. And perhaps it is that the church has a true family, a true kingdom, a true home where we sinful humans can be our true selves in Jesus Christ. And so today, 2017, the Jesus church, the church Jesus builds, is devoted to the fellowship no less than the church of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It is for God's glory that we are devoted in this way because devotion in this way leads to witness, the transformation of lives, the expansion of the kingdom, and Jesus being exalted. I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Holy and gracious God.